even last spring when there were a lot of people there, yes, there was people crowding the hallways and they were shouting at lawmakers and they were angry that they felt the lawmakers weren't doing enough to address the mass shooting situation. But it was really just words. I mean, nobody was assaulted. There was no violence. There was no riot. There was no insurrection. And <laughs> people, clearly Republican lawmakers in the House specifically, were so upset by it that they've now taken these steps to really ratchet back You know, most public interaction. They don't want to have to see anybody they disagree with, including this big fight they're having now about whether people can hold up a, an 8 by 11 sign. Like, uh, I could bring a gun in, but maybe not a sign. I was a little su- surprised, honestly, that nobody was created an, enough to do a sign on a gun, right? That might confuse people. Uh, what would you do in that scenario? Take the gun, take the sign, take out somebody that has that? I don't know. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have to do something. Welcome to PBN. My name is Braden Gall, and you can follow me on Twitter. That's right, Twitter, going down with the ship, at Braden Gall. I'm Jamie Holland. I refuse to call it anything else. Our guest today on I love that you uh, don't want to follow the actual name of it. A lot of people like that about me. I think it's funny. It's my, one of my most likable qualities. Uh, no, no, do you call it Meta or do you call it Facebook? I call that a Russian spy tool. Oh come on! All right, I'm not on it. I'm not on it either. But I'm not on it either. The point is that nobody's years. walking around this town calling it Meta. They they call it Facebook, which means we're calling it Twitter. If somebody says something about Facebook, my mental capacity to listen <laughs> ends. Uh, Eric Shelzig, of course, editor of the Tennessee Journal, and Joel Ebert, formerly of the Tennessee and currently at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. Their new book, Welcome to Capitol Hill, is out 50 years of scandal in Tennessee politics. They will be our guests today on the show, appropriately timed with the special session taking place. Sort of a little bit of a, little bit of a break over the weekend as they um, they didn't adjourn, but they, they, they paused the special session on on Thursday, they will reconvene they Monday. Did, they did adjourn for the weekend. Is that the official legal term That's, I need to know? I mean, I don't know if it's legal or not a term, but it's the term that's used one in of, the legislature. One of my favorite parts of working with you is the, the language you correct all the time, it's just, which is what it's fine. I'm okay with it. They are back in session. The House at 2 p.m. on Monday and the Senate at 4 p.m. On Monday, there's a bunch of potential bills that need to get discussed, maybe, possibly, on the Senate side. There are four that have gone through the Senate. We'll get to all of that. The implications of what this week have done to the reputation of the body, how they are actually going to solve some of the problems between the two chambers, and what actually could come of all of this. We'll get to that with Joel and with Eric coming up a little bit later on in the show. Uh, We'll get to some procedural stuff that I think we need to sort of set the scene with because there seems to be some misunderstandings about what is capable in the special session, but also how a bill becomes a law to some folks. Oh, by the way, there's a mayoral runoff taking place (laughs) in our city, Jamie, and uh, things are getting a little feisty. I don't know if you noticed, but on Thursday night, the temperatures were raised a few degrees. There's some attack ads on the airwaves from Alice Rowley, uh, but there is a mayoral race happening by the way, in well, case anybody forgot. Well, after the debate last night, according to the National Banner this morning, Alice Rowley ran off. <laughs> so her first two major interactions with the press as in the, as a runoff candidate were, I should have thought about that more, essentially, and then does not take any comments after the debate. I think she's taking her own advice. They asked her, do you want to comment to the press after the debate? And she's currently thinking about it. <laughs> I applaud her for following her own advice. Uh, also, uh, she might be the only one in the room thinking about it. So there's there's that uh, as well. So Maybe she doesn't have anyone to help think with her as she lost her campaign staff. It's important to have terminated good, them. I don't know. It's important to have good people in the room with you when you make decisions about your life. Listen, uh, Freddie, according to the Tennessee Lookout, I believe had basically an 18 point lead going into 58-40, I believe, uh, with a lot of undecideds breaking, apparently, according to that poll, to Freddie. So 18-point lead going into that debate on Thursday night. Things got a little chippier, relatively speaking. And, of course, the attack ads are now up on the airwaves. So uh, at least they're trying to make it a race here. They're trying to make some contrast with each other. And uh, education, public schools, LPRs all came up at the debate. 
But uh, again, I don't know. I don't know what she can do, honestly, in in two or three more weeks before uh, voting takes place. By the way, early voting began on Friday, August 25th. Polling locations are linked in the show notes. So go ahead and get out and early vote. Uh, There's obviously four at-large seats on the table as well. So much to, to be accomplished by the voters of Middle Tennessee while we are all distracted by what's taking place in the special session. Uh, just as a reminder to folks, Jamie, before you talk a little bit more specifically about the session. Well, I want to say something about Rowley. The, oh, the only thing I can really tell from her runoff or ran off campaign is that she made a deal with David Fox. If I'm going to, if David's going to be your treasurer, she's got to put him in all the damn ads. Well, he is a recognizable face who got into a runoff himself. Eight fucking but, years ago. Yeah, I guess it was a long time ago. <laughs> okay. So, are you done with the runoff? Same as Alice. I'm done. Okay. Um, rate, review, subscribe to the show. Please share the product. We know you're listening, so just give it give it a share. Tell somebody about it. Tell them how to do the right thing, Brady. Why do you Why do you do that to me? <laughs> People know how to use apps on a smartphone, man. It's 2023. Anyway. All right. Somebody that I love very, very dearly that lives in my house that will remain <laughs> nameless <laughs> was irate watching the special session this week and we're going to save joel and eric from having to deal with this uh but as it pertains to enhanced carry permits in schools the education committee debate that took place for hours drove a few people very close to me in my life just absolutely bonkers and i had to calm said person down who i love dearly and to remind this person that uh a bill has to pass both chambers to become a law it did not eventually make it out of the education committee. Thank goodness. I think the enhanced term with the concealed carry permit on, a, on, a, on allowing basically anybody to bring a gun into a school or into school events on this, on the property that's hosting a school event. Uh, enhanced carry permit is just a, a PR term from the gun lobby to make it seem like it is a more equipped person to handle a weapon in schools. It's, I'm just going to say it seems like one of the dumbest things a legislative body could ever do, which is probably why this person that I love dearly was so pissed off. Uh, but it did not make it out of education committee. And as it's just a reminder that we need to tell some folks that a bill has to pass both chambers, the Senate and the House, and the bill has to be the same. If it gets changed in one chamber, it's got to go back to the other to become an actual piece of legislation. You don't like folks. my corrections. But you're saying that words matter. And I think that's called a bicameral legislature. It has two houses, a House and a Senate. And both of them has to pass the same language for a bill to be sent to the governor for signature. Or in Tennessee, he doesn't have to sign it. And it becomes law without his signature once it reaches his desk or he can veto it, and a veto is overridden by the legislature by a simple majority of each house. Two houses. I think that's pretty straightforward. I think there was a cartoon in the 60s or 70s that helped people understand this, uh, but again, it, I know... Now, Braden, I've warned you not to go down that road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here you are going, I stop, know, I know. stop, right. stop, stop. All right, speaking of the governor, uh, absent for most of the session, he did make a comment on Thursday evening. Again, we'll get into that with Joel and Eric as well. So, Jamie, I know you want to sort of lay out some some guidelines, some rules, some reminders to folks about what is or is not going to be or capable of being a part of the special session that it seems like some folks maybe, I don't want to say forgot, but just maybe aren't aware of as we headed into it last week and are going to have another week of this. What is it that people need to know about what can and cannot be discussed during this session? Well, the press and the minority seem to be focused on things that cannot be discussed because this is indeed a special session or extraordinary session in the subject matter of bills that can be considered are limited by what is found in the governor's proclamation that was submitted on August 8th and available on Tennessee secretary of state's website. No bill outside these subjects can even be filed. On the first day of the special session, House Democratic Caucus Chairman John Ray Clemens started asking questions of how come bills that had been filed did not receive a number and was that violation of the permanent rules. 
and he was advised by the parliamentarian in the clerk's office, no, those bills are not getting numbers because they embrace subjects outside the call or the governor's proclamation. They're not going to be heard, period. So there's a lot of yelling and screaming for the purposes of PR about particular issues. Is that what we're saying? PR, performative, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, and I get it. They're in the minority, you know, super minority. So yeah, they're going to try to pound the table. You know, used to, you used to pound the facts. You got the facts, pound the law. If you got the law on your side, if neither, pound the table. A lot of table pounding going on. I I think there's a lot of people that know that that's all that they can accomplish. I think voters sometimes and constituents know that that, that's all that they can accomplish, but it doesn't make the feelings change. It it doesn't change the the feelings of the families of of the Covenant School. It doesn't change the feelings of parents all across this city who are scared to send their kids to school. So I, I hear what you're saying. I think it's important that people understand it. It doesn't change people's feelings. And I think screaming about stuff sometimes is cathartic. So it doesn't mean anything's going to pass. It doesn't mean anything's going to change. But sometimes people feel better when they scream about stuff. Agree. But I, w- I want to talk about there's 18 items in the governor's proclamation. One, number one, mental health resources, providers, commitments, or services. We talked about that with Darren Hall. But a bill passed the floor of the House Thursday evening, House Bill 7027. It takes a burden off local government, puts it on the state, and that's relative to people that commit misdemeanors. They get a mental health evaluation. Currently in Davidson County, there's 229 individuals that commit about 1,500 crimes a year because they've already been declared mentally incompetent. Well, what do we know about people that are mentally incompetent? Well, they can't spend time in prison, can't be adjudicated guilty or jail. And so they're cycling through our criminal justice system, committing various misdemeanors, you know, downtown, elsewhere in the community. And this is going to provide funding to send them to Middle Tennessee Mental Health Institute on Stewart's Ferry Pike to get them a mental health evaluation. And there are other bills on the calendar that would provide commitments, services for that purpose. And that's a lot of money that has moved from the Metro Davidson County Nashville budget to the state budget, correct? Not not just in Davidson County, all throughout the state, but for our purposes, yes, for Davidson County. But let's talk about number 12. Number 12, talking about temporary mental health orders of protection, extreme risk protection order, or red flag laws. Red flag laws apparently has terrible branding but there's a 1913 Tennessee Supreme Court case. It's called State X-Rail National Conservation Exhibition Exposition Company v. Woolen. Not to get nerdy here, but that case says two things. While the governor may so limit the subjects of legislation, he cannot dictate to the legislature the special legislation which they shall enact on those subjects. It also says he cannot, under the guise of definition, impose his will upon the legislature as to laws they shall pass. But we repeat, he can, by bona fide definition, limit the subject to be legislated on so as to make that subject either broad or narrow. Well, in number 12, the word must appear six times. If some, even if someone passed a bill, an extreme risk protection order, that followed Item 12, the legislature passed that, it would get, there would be a lawsuit the next day, and it would be declared unconstitutional, violating Article 3, Section 9 of the Tennessee Constitution. It's not happening. So we have four bills that passed the Senate. Half of the calendar on Thursday evening passed in the House, which is about 27 bills. About half of that got passed. You just mentioned one. And the debate now becomes what is going to happen with all of that legislation next week. And so with that in mind, I think we have a lot to discuss with Eric and Joel about the state of the body, the reputation of the body, what actually happens if the Senate refuses to take up any of these bills that the House has agreed upon. They just laid them on the table. Items number one, number one in the proclamation, mental health resources. Those committees opened, laid them on the table immediately, and then took up the things they wanted to take up, and that's it. They've avoided, up till now, 
any media scrutiny by virtue of them shutting their mouth and doing nothing. Talking about the Senate. Correct. Yeah. So I, I think it's, which is why this episode's coming out a little early this week. Uh, we want to get people the information before they gavel back in, of course, at two o'clock and four o'clock on Monday. Uh, but w- what does all of that mean? We'll talk with, with Eric and Joel about that. And of course, you're also going to hear a, a lot of conversation about their book, important documentation of some of the things that have taken place in our state in politics. Uh, but also Eric was down at the state house for most of the special sessions. So we'll have a lot of insight from the guys uh, with that. Anything else, Jamie, you want to add? Rolly, rolly, rolly. <laughs> the kids used to love a song about Rolex. That was one of the lyrics. That's, that's what that's came true. in my head. There you go. That, singing. I'm not sure the people are clamoring for us to be singing on the pod, Jamie. I'm just, Throwing it out there. All right. Without any more procedural I missed stuff. my moment. It's I became right. a lawyer instead. It's all right. You're doing, you're doing work over there. Without any more from us about the procedural stuff or the actual mayoral election, that, that is, in fact, taking place. Again, reminder, early voting already started on Friday the 25th. September 14th is the election. There are other bills in the hopper to deal with mental health. There are, there are. And it is on the Senate to take those up. So what is this going to look like? What is the reputation? What is Gov- Governor Bill Lee's role in all of this? We will get to all of that as well as a quick history lesson and talk about the brand new book, Welcome to Capitol Hill, 50 Years of Scandals in Tennessee Politics by Joel Ebert and Eric Shelzik. Here was our conversation with the guys. Joel Ebert, Eric Shelzig, authors, Welcome to Capitol Hill. We'll get into the book, 50 Years of Scandal in Tennessee Politics. Boys, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming in and giving us some time. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, we're going to start with the extraordinary session that took place uh, this last week and, of course, get into what could take place next week. We'll tell some stories about the book, of course. Fascinating read. Absolutely recommend. I I would go bookshop.org if you want to support some local bookshops, but you can get it everywhere. You get your books, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. So go support some some good work there. And, And we'll get into why you guys wanted to write it and put all this stuff down on paper. I think it's a you're doing a lot of people a good service. So let's start with you, Eric, on just the general vibe and energy and experience down at the state house last week for the the three days of special session what did you see what was it like um weird i think is the way i'd describe it most um the legislature clearly expected there to be mass protests and lots of people and other things and there just weren't there was you know, dozens and dozens of troopers everywhere. They cordoned off large areas. They blocked the tunnel from the Cordell Hall building to the Capitol building to prevent anybody but lawmakers, staff, and and the media to go through. Um, and in the end, yes, there was a lot of covenant mothers there, uh, emotional interactions and committee rooms and other things. But otherwise, it was pretty much deserted. It was it was a, a strange feeling. I I thought one of the weirdest sights was, you know, I spent four years just walking through the halls of the Cordell Hall building. Well, I guess it was three. My first year was uh, in their old building. But you see state troopers on just every floor of of the Cordell Hall building everywhere. Uh, That wasn't a sight I was used to. You know, it was you could mill about and walk around those rooms and only see staffers generally or another lawmaker. So just seeing at the end of a hall or throughout the hall, a bunch of state troopers all around was kind of off-putting. And, and I think from a, a temperature standpoint, you know, we had the expulsion stuff where it was incredibly intense and people, you know, right or wrong, had certain feelings of fear in those situations, probably from the Republican side. Um, that might have been the opposite this week. I don't know how you guys felt, but it, it seems like you have the Proud Boys outside with with assault rifles. Uh, Caleb Hemmers told the story on Twitter about 25 to 30 weapons had been let into the building legally with concealed carry permits. People are standing outside of representatives offices in a threatening ish harassment ish type of way. Uh, I think it was right to have all the, the the law enforcement there. But the temperature of the whole situation is extremely unique No. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, you know, I, I don't know. I, I still feel like it was a bit of an overreaction. Of course, I don't have the intelligence reports that, that the safety department has or that lawmakers think they have. But it, even last spring when there were a lot of people there, yes, there was people crowding the hallways and they were shouting at lawmakers and they were angry that they felt the lawmakers weren't doing enough to address the mass shooting situation. But it was really just words. I mean, nobody was assaulted. There was no violence. There was no riot. There was no insurrection. 
And <laughs> people, clearly Republican lawmakers in the House specifically, were so upset by it that they've now taken these steps to really ratchet back uh, any or you know most public interaction. They don't want to have to see anybody they disagree with, including this big fight they're having now about whether people can hold up uh, an eight by eleven sign. Uh, I, I could bring a gun in, but maybe not a sign. Right, which is, you know, the, the Democrats tried to make a big point of on, on the House floor and, and, and Republicans tried to, you know, downplay it or, or hide from it and, and not, not address it. I was a little su- surprised, honestly, that nobody was created an, enough to do a sign on a gun, right? That might confuse people. Uh, what would you do in that scenario? Take the gun, take the sign, take out somebody that has that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe the Bugs Bunny style with the, with the, with the, when it comes out and says bang. You know. I, I think somebody needs, whoever's listening, please execute this idea next uh, this week's session. Uh, please, for the love of God. Um, I, I, they may be another hearing on that issue very soon. Yeah. Chancellor Ann Martin issued a temporary restraining order, and the AG's office filed a written response yesterday requesting an expedited hearing. Maybe that happens today. Maybe that happens. Uh, excuse me, Braden. Maybe that happened last Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe the hearing happens tomorrow. There you go. The, the you legislature go. was angry that chancellor martin issued the order within basically 70 minutes of the of the first amendment lawsuit being filed and said it was a you know an abuse of the separations of powers between the branches of government that somehow a judge was trying to tell the legislature what they could and couldn't do um you know first amendment seems to trump all that but you know we'll see we'll see what happens the lawsuit was filed by the aclu and one of the lawyers filing the lawsuit is a council member elect for council district 25 and in a prior episode Braden, i mentioned the fuck around period it's going to start in october i was wrong i missed that a few months <laughs> you were wrong on the 40 also hour wrong under. on the yeah. line 48 yeah. hour line you know we're we're beyond that so if you bet the over on that congratulations well, I'm curious for both of you, and Joel, I'll start with you. Uh, you know, going into this, we knew the temperature was going to be what it was, and the Covenant parents were going to be involved, and the constituents in Tennessee want this to be about guns. But if you read rules and you read words, you know that guns were not really on the table as a part of this session. So is it largely a bunch of people that feel helpless about a particular issue that are trying to just, you know, as we said earlier in the show, pound the table on something to whether it's social media virality, whether it's just get our words out there, whether it's performative votes. You know, we had a a really, really bad bill die in the education committee that people were very upset about watching it as it unfolded, even though it had no chance of ever getting to the Senate. What was the purpose? Like, do you think the people accomplished what they were trying to accomplish, whether elected or otherwise, around the gun issue as best they could? When you say the people, do you mean the actual... You know, voters of Tennessee, do you mean the elected officials? Uh, well, everybody. Anyone who's up there trying to make noise about the issue, that's, yeah. that's all that they could do was make noise. Did they do a good job of that? I, clearly, they had some impact, right? So you were able to um, change the subject away from just about what is going to happen in form of legislation this week to now all of a sudden they're restricting access. The public is limiting you know, or, or having its ability to interact with lawmakers in normally very boring ways, uh, severely cut back. Um, I think if you look at it from the, the legislating side, I mean, it, it does seem like it was a large waste of time, right? It, you're not going to the core issue that is really um, behind uh, what was happening in Covenant, what has happened in school shootings and other shootings around the state and around the country, frankly. Um, but I don't know that they, you know, there was any intention from a legislative standpoint to actually go at that core issue going into this, right? You saw plenty of lawmakers saying, well, why are we doing this now, right? Um, I think there were plenty of people who were uh, frustrated that the governor called them back in August and just wanted to come back in January. I would be skeptical that anything would have been different, though, in January. Yeah. And, and Jamie, I'll, I'll ask this for you. Was that at the detriment to accomplishing other things or I guess could accomplish other things, Eric, in terms of what actually could get accomplished in the session? Well, I mean, the governor issued the call that was already limited and the the legislature can't do what's not in the call. I mean, they're they're prohibited from doing that in a special session. It's not just a free for all. So we already knew that it wasn't going to address, you know, quote unquote, gun control even to the extent that that was going to happen anyway, right? Like the Republican lawmakers are not going to do anything that would be 
perceived as a red flag law or anything else because that just goes against the grain of, of, of gun, the gun rights crowd and it's just not going to happen. Um, it was interesting seeing the, uh, you know, the, the, the covenant moms being used in certain ways uh, that they may or may not have appreciated, you know. So there's a bill out there that's still alive as, as we speak uh, that would restrict access to autopsy reports and violent deaths of, of minors. And this, you know, some, some mothers from the covenant, covenant school were really in favor of this. Others, not, not so much. And uh, things are divided. But the advocates have pushed this as being this is what we're doing to sort of help these people deal with their grief, etc. What's not said a lot of times is that aut- autopsy photos are already blocked in Tennessee law. These are not photos. These are descriptions. And, uh, and, and still people are, are, are pushing this forward. And, you know, the, the Senate may or may not go along with it, but even if they pass it, it doesn't really go to the core issue. Again, this is, these are sort of ancillary elements. Um, that, by the way, seems to be the likeliest matter of compromise for the two chambers to get out uh, this, this coming week. Um, but, again, you know, people look, lean back and they say, you know, for what? <laughs> and, right. and, you know, the governor had that weird statement he put out at the end of the week, you know, after being largely in abstention the whole time. Uh, and saying, oh, I'm really glad the covenant mothers got to be heard. Well, you know, they, they did, but they certainly didn't get, you know, much of what they hoped for. And in the end, may get the sort of the, the scraps that not everyone wanted in the first place. If only he would have been in a position to allow for more conversation for the covenant parents. Or, or you know, take a stronger lead. I mean, he was the one pushing for this special session. He had an appearance out in Wilson County at the FFA on, on, on Monday, the day of the, the beginning of the special session, and didn't mention it at all. I mean, he didn't say, hey, everyone, let's get behind and doing whatever, X, Y, or Z. He just sort of been silent and then just was not involved at all, all week, last week, until putting out a statement that sort of just didn't really you know, say much of anything. And I, and I think for historical context, I mean, that's been Bill Lee's MO throughout his governorship. He has not been somebody who's been outspoken and leading on a number of issues. He's had a couple of things. He's convinced a couple of, um, you know, legislative leaders to go along with him on um, a couple of issues. But by and large, it seems like it's been sort of a directionless um, uh, use of the governor's office. You have a bully pulpit and oftentimes he doesn't use it in the way that you would see in in previous governors. Well, he, he limited item 12 about extreme risk protection orders some might say in such a way that it's unconstitutional. I would be in that boat because item 12 has the word must in it six times. And, you know, Supreme court case law says that the governor can only give them a subject matter to limit. Can't, can't direct the text of the bill. And so did he do that knowingly or did some lawyer write it for him? Knowing that a governor with an engineering background is not going to know the difference. (laughs) It was, it was a bit of a cover-your-ass kind of thing. He, wa- he wanted to put out the fact that you could bring in these extreme risk uh, protection orders, but like you said, you know, putting out those caveats in there saying, but not, you know, ex parte, not this, not this, not the other. Uh, he says, yeah, we, we allowed it to happen, but, but then really we weren't allowing a, a, a broad approach to the extent it was going to pass anyway, which it wasn't. So it's all kind of performative. Well, he, get, he gets the best of both worlds, right? He gets to say, mm-hmm. hey, I put it in my proclamation. You know, it's not on me. The legislature didn't take it up. Blame them. Right. Which I guess he can tell. I mean, he he and his wife were close friends with, with one of the women, uh, one of the substitute teacher that was killed in, in the shooting. And it was a very emotional thing, as, as it would be. It was terrible. Uh, so I think they're plugged into that community, and they very much want to tell folks, you know, that they're trying to do something, and they will call the special session. But once it was called, it was sort of like, well, let's let it ride and see what happens. And then we ended up with where we did, which is the Senate essentially doing the bare minimum and saying they want to go home. The House trying to do a couple things, some of them not related at all, like juvenile uh, crime issues, trying to try, uh, you know, minors as adults for certain serious crimes. Uh, You know, the the shooter in the Covenant School was 28. There's no juvenile anything, right? And so it's totally unrelated to the the reason for the session and just other law and order priorities the legislature had. Uh, And even that apparently probably not going to pass well i think since the end of the regular session till now they would say that the covenant shooter had mental health issues and so i think it's kind of hypocritical which might be the corner of the realm i know but for the senate to not take up any issues that deals with mental health while the house has bills on that subject and the senate has bills on that subject for them to just jump into their committees lay them all on the table and come up with these three vanilla 
items that they're going to pass, you know, the additional one being funding for funding appropriations. Well, that's, that's the it. I mean, the, Sen- the Senate says, well, it was for the special session, but there's also money in there, a decent chunk of money for the Department of Mental Health, uh, which they say they can do a lot of these things through spending priorities without legislation. So they're saying they're, they're addressing it, just not through a bill. You know, it might be a little bit of a, a spin there, you know, believe it or not. Uh, but that's that's what the Senate says. Well, and, and we were talking before, seven, Bill 7089, $30 million in spending to various mental health and school safety initiatives, $16.3 million to the mental the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse. That's better than zero. Right. I mean, if, if we're talking about trying to do something, at least it's better than zero. Right. And, <laughs> that's, and, that's, and, that's, that's, the, and that's the argument the Senate makes is like that this can be done without, uh, you know, writing a bill. Uh, it's it's in the spending plan. At least part of it is the sixteen million, as, as I understand it. Um, so you know it's going to happen. But you know, uh, yeah. yeah, it's been it's been and, and basically the thing devolving into a House versus Senate throwdown. Uh, I guess is probably predictable because it happens every session in some form or another. Uh, but yeah, it, it's been it's been you know interesting to see. Everyone hoped that everyone expressed hope to be in for three to four days last week and then go home or maybe even do less. Some people just want to adjourn from the get-go, the so-called surrender caucus. Um, but instead we're coming back for another week and you know, they say they're gonna come back Monday and get it done, but usually when they arrive for one day, it means they'll be here all week yeah. and anything could happen. So we'll, we'll see what goes down. Well, okay. one of the surrender caucus members in the house that voted to adjourn, he got removed from his committee. That's right. Chair position. That's right. He's not happy about it. Hey, can I ask you, you two? Uh, I thought I read somewhere he just rolled along with it. <laughs> It might have been a misinterpretation or or, 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 or or a bit of spin from the speaker's office as well. But uh, yeah, he's. Uh, I spoke to him this morning and he's not happy. To- <laughs> this is a totally sort of a personal question to reporters about the impact of photography and visuals on school shooting. I've had this conversation with a lot of reporters and editors and most media entities will just not ever show the photos because of a lot of different reasons whether there's potential legal ramifications and legislative ramifications, there's ethical considerations. I am personally of the belief that largely we are not going to change much until like photojournalism changed how we viewed wars historically personally. And you're not, I'm not asking you to speak for any entities or any previous or past job. just personally, do you think we need to see stuff like that for any change to actually happen? That's a tough one. I mean, it's, it's, as you said, it's fraught with, you know, ethical, legal, and, and, you know, sort of moral issues, you know, the, you know, again, this is what we talked about on this bill on the autopsies, you know, people don't, you know, the idea of these images being shared widely is horrifying to people, even though it's actually not the case with the autopsy thing. But um, yeah, I, you know, I the most, the most enduring photo from the covenant shooting to me was the picture of the girl in the school bus with her hand on the window yeah. wailing. And like, I think that was shocking enough, even though that, you know, obviously that girl was fine. I mean, you know, physically, not emotionally, right, right, right. probably not. Uh, I guess maybe I'm too much of old school media that I probably lean to the, the side of like trying to draw some lines. I mean, I guess we saw that, you know, the famous photos from, from 9-11 of the people jumping out of the building and like that was kind of suppressed at the time and then it came out later and, and yeah, it's, it's shocking and terrible. Um, but yeah, no, I, I guess I, I hadn't planned for an answer. So I'll, I'll kick it to Joel here because I'm sure he knows the, the, I mean, the right answer. I, I, in my personal life, have said I think that needs to be a discussion that is had, right? I, I, I think you can have an emotional reaction to words. And there were certainly emotional reactions to some of the testimony. I, I watched one committee um, this week where there was one of the covenant moms uh, was there. Her, her child survived, but um, she quoted... Uh, the mother of one of the children that died. And you could see every single committee member, Republican and Democrat, uh, taking it very seriously. And it, she was allowed two minutes. She exceeded that and nobody tried to cut her off. Um, and I think that spoke volumes just to hear directly from a mother who is suffering. I think it's another entirely different thing to see a shredded body that is a child. I mean, I can't fathom what it would look like. I don't want to, but this is the world we live in. And to bury our heads in the sand and ignore it and act like we can't do anything about it. That's, that's I think, the thing that we haven't tested that, right? And I, I do question whether that's the right move or not. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's the media's place. Um, I don't know that I want to be the person that's publishing that photo. Um, but... If that starts to change minds, maybe it's worth talking about. 
Well, I, well, just having this conversation makes me think of the murder of Emmett Till, and his mother decided that it was going to be an open casket, and that was a galvanizing point to wake up the nation yeah. to this issue. Well, and she's attributed with the courage and guts it took to do that, change things Ty- in America. Tyree Nichols, I believe his mother, is the one who wanted the video of the interaction published. She said, no, put this out. Yeah. And all the police officers and Memphis handled that particular situation better than almost anybody else in the country. The officers were immediately reprimanded and I think fired, I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken. Washington Post also did a very interesting story about what the effects of an AR-15 bullet does mm-hmm. to right. the body. Like, we're, we're dancing around it. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to get as close as we can. This is not the point of the conversation. I just, we have two seasoned journalists here. I'd like to ask you guys what you think. And um, it, it's... I don't think anything's going to happen until we see a body of a nine-year-old shredded by an assault rifle. I don't think that anything changes, but that's just me. <clears throat> All right. Sorry, boys. <laughs> On that happy note. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, you, you guys mentioned, uh, uh, Eric, you mentioned sort of this is what happens with Sessions. The, the House and, the, and the, the Senate don't agree. Is it good for the constituents, for the community, that we're going to have another week of healthy debate, or is it just infighting is it just sort of business as usual is it just pettiness or is there actually some benefit to the community eventually with the house and the senate at such odds right now i I don't anticipate too much healthy debate or at least public debate you know now we've gotten to the point where the house has passed their bills and the senate has passed their bills and then now the you know behind closed doors negotiations will ensue and then once the deal is struck, the respective legislation will be rushed through and passed and it'll be done. We'll be gone. Uh, so I, I don't know that it adds anything. Uh, you know, they could have, they probably should have just hung around and done it today, you know, Friday, sorry, today. Um, <laughs> you know, or they could have if they wanted to work through the weekend or whatever. You know, I don't think it matters. And I don't, you know, again, we'll see. Maybe with a weekend to think about it, we'll see a, a more of a push, you know, even more of a push for people, the protesters to come and let their voice be heard on either side of the issue. Um, you know, which of course means more overtime for our state troopers and, and, and everybody else and, and another, you know, and so I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's good or bad or otherwise. I think it just is. Uh, you know, I, I'll go back to, you know, I think it, it was Mark Twain or somebody that said, uh, you know, no one's safe when the legislature's in session. Uh, you know, I, I very much see that right now. You know, I talked to a couple of state lawmakers, Democrats, um, I, I talked to Republicans too, but this week the the people I was uh, discussing, you know, why are you here? What are you guys accomplishing? And the Democrats said nothing. You know, this is uh, basically a shit show, right? Um, it, it that's certainly the sentiment that I think a lot of people on the outside uh, see it as. And so, you know, at this point, it seems uh, maybe the best move would be to wave the white flag and go home. Yeah, duty to warn, providing funding for mental health that's important if they don't do it because post covenant till today they said you know it's clear we want to see the the writings of the shooter and clearly she had some mental disease or defect well it's kind of hypocritical if you don't then provide funding for mental health if that's what you're saying in the lead up to it yeah i mean that's the argument and uh you know just to go back to joel's comment you know, the, the, I think it was Charlene Oliver said on Twitter, this is a shit show and we should go home. So like, I don't think you have to hide that behind any sort of an anonymity. It was said publicly and it was kind of interesting to see that kind of uh, overt sort of criticism that, you know, we see sort of more subtle and, and, and sort of formal complaints. And then this was like people are just throwing their hands up saying, why are we here? I mean, isn't it the shit show part of being a member of the Tennessee General Assembly? I do wonder, though, if this is a moment that Republicans that normally don't go to the legislature, these covenant moms, right? They are Republicans. They don't normally see the shit show this close up, right? Yeah. You you may see it in your headlines. You may see it from afar. You may hear about it. But you're literally in a committee meeting now and seeing the shit show that it's just commonly a thing that we all watch and just, ah, you know, whatever it's. The legislature being the legislature, I wonder if that will lead to uh, discussions back home and potentially more people running for office and primarying some of these Republicans who aren't doing, you know, anything on on this issue. So that'll be something that I'll be keeping an eye on from afar. Well, it's interesting. Jamie's big on the hollowing out of our politics, and it you say primary. 
you know, I think instinctually we all think further away from the center. But what you're saying is, you know, parents might be pushing some a, mo- a more moderate candidate in a more red district. Potentially. I, I mean, I if you had asked me that three or four years ago, I would have been very skeptical that that's a winning position. But again, if you were a gun-toting mother who is you know living in the district of a very conservative part of this state and you're asking for simple measures on this one particular issue maybe you can go a little bit you know to a more moderate position on and 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 win i don't know hey if nikki haley can admit there's climate change all right (laughs) (laughs) totally different subject altogether um all right jamie do you have any more questions on the special session because I think we should talk about the book. How about that? That's why you guys are here. Uh, welcome to Capitol Hill, 50 Years of Scandal in Tennessee Politics. And I just want to start with my personal journey through this book. Uh, the mental whiplash that I had in the first major chapter about former Governor Ray, Ray Blanton, I, I felt like I was going back in time and coming back to 2023 with like every paragraph. It's it's this old school guy that did all these crazy, dirty tricks that just don't work at all in modern world and society. Like, again, my favorite one is the Crisco on the train tracks, trying to derail a train, maybe diluting the, the, the fuel in the train, like the craziest shit you've ever heard trying to get a guy off the campaign trail. But then he stands in front of the press and deny, 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 attack the press, attack the press, which is what we see today in our politics. Did you guys have as much mental whiplash writing it as I did reading it? Yeah, so I wrote that chapter, and yeah, very much. I mean, I'm reading a lot about this because I didn't know Ray Blanton. Um, I've read a lot of the coverage at the time, interviewed people who did know him, and there are very uh, similar things that, you know, I'm looking at it and like, this is a populist, you know, this is a man who says he's a man of the people, but uh, also was very combative with the media. Hmm, who's this sound like, you know? <laughs> um, and so it, it, it definitely uh, spoke to me in a, what is past is present, you know, sort of sense. Um, It also reminded you that, you know, no matter how much things change, they often stay the same. So these politicians uh, have existed, will exist, and and will continue to exist in the future, uh, no matter what party I feel like they're in. How about you, Eric? Yeah, I mean, you know, know, it's hard for me not just delve right into the, the craziness that happened. I mean, to me... The, the shocking thing about Ray Blanton was, you know, the, the thing that blew the lid off of it was the, the release, the early release, or the, I guess the supervised release of uh, this guy, Roger Humphreys, who, uh, you know, became a state photographer. And uh, I, write, I write the political newsletter, the Tennessee Journal, which got started about 50 years ago by a guy named Lee Smith. And just as soon after it got started, Lee was in the office of uh, Ned McWhorter, the speaker, and saw this guy walk in, and, and, and Lee was from Northeast Tennessee, he's from Kingsport or something, and knew this family and knew this guy, uh, Roger Humphreys, and he's like, what the hell is this guy doing here? <laughs> and in the backstory on him is he had been convicted of shooting his his ex-wife and her new partner. Like a lot of times. Eight, with a two-shot Derringer. Yeah, 18 times with a Derringer, which means he had to reload Jesus. it. Nine times, you know? Yeah. Like this wasn't a, you know, it might have been a crime of passion at first, but not yeah, <laughs> at the yeah. end. Um, so... This appears on the back page of, of the Tennessee Journal has like a notes and quotes section saying like, here's something weird. You know, this guy <laughs> showed up, you know, three years after being convicted or less. And uh, and, and it caused this the firestorm. And it, you can only imagine like the pace that these things happened in 1975, the year I was born. Um, you know, just, you know, all the TV news, all, it was just, just absolute maelstrom. And people saying to Blanton, like, what the hell is going on here? And like that continued all the way through, you know, his administration and his constant fight over him wanting to release prisoners. And, you know, they're not so bad. And, of course, it helped that this guy, Roger Humphrey's dad, had been on the what used to be called the patronage committee, which is a great literal description of what it is. It'd be nice <laughs> if they still called them those. and They still exist, but they're not called that anymore. Um, you know, it, it, to me, it, it speaks to a sort of, you know, who knows if we would have known about it if Lee Smith hadn't been in that room and like, right. you know any other reporter would have been there and be like, Oh, it's just a photographer in here. I don't know who that is, you know? And, uh, and, you know, it, it speaks to how many reporters were around and how something like this could have been found out or could just as easily not have been found out. And it would have been a lot later until people caught on to what was going on in that administration. I don't want to give all the details of the book. So I want people to go buy it, but do you guys, you, you talk a little bit about why you wanted to do it. You want to put stuff down on paper so that people have a record of this stuff you know, there wasn't social media. We know all the dynamics at play with media today. And 
you know, I, I would ask the traditional sort of what, what do you want people to take from this? But really just personally, what did you want to accomplish in, in writing? Is it just to create a record for folks to make sure we have everything that took place? That's certainly part of it, but uh, go ahead. Joe has a more uh, nuanced view on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it serves multiple purposes, right? I think it's a, a living history. Uh, I think it's interesting as we're writing this, you're able to include up until this year, um, which really tells you about the state of uh, politics in Tennessee. Um, it also is a reminder um, of, you know, political wind shift over time, right? We went from a state that was a Democratic supermajority to now a Republican. Um, it won't last forever. You know, who knows when it'll change? Um, Jamie, I don't know. Are you taking bets on that in this episode or... Yeah. I think the, uh, the two, two the, terms of mayor, at least. I think the Democratic supermajority is much different from the Democratic Party of today. So You're I don't, I don't right. see it shifting in my generation. Yeah, it's and, true. It's true. Democrats were extremely conservative and rural based at the time. Um, but you could see how the party might shift in different ways or a different party or something like that might. When I was coming of age, it was called the West Tennessee Mafia. <laughs> yeah, led, rural led, West, for led, sure. Led by Nafee from Covington. And uh, I think one of the other reasons we wrote this is hopefully this is a wake-up call to people, right? I, I hope this motivates people to say, you know, hey, if I don't like this elected official, uh, I can do something about that, right? Whether that's donate to somebody or run for office yourselves. Um, hopefully this is a, uh, uh, you know, a, a way to kind of serve as a, a little bit of a fuel uh, to actually hold your elected officials accountable in ways that we often don't do in this sort of polarized time where we're just blind to party affiliation. Eric, what did you learn through the process? You know, mine was, you know, more, almost more of a, of a technical element of trying to write, trying to write a narrative about these various scandals. And we have, you know, about six or seven of them that we try to focus on in the book. And what we did for a lot of them is went back and read the contemporaneous accounts in newspapers. And again, there was a lot more reporters at the time and a lot more news accounts. And so there's a lot more stories that are daily stories or twisted the screw things. Like on this day, this happened, this day, that happened. And so for a layman to go and try to read these accounts, like it's kind of overwhelming and the context is missing. You don't know what's happening if you're not reading them sort of in, in, at the time and in chronological order, et cetera. So taking all of that, distilling it and trying to write it in a way that like people who haven't, you know, who might not have known, you know, the, the butcher's bank saga or, you know, the Rocky Top bingo uh, gambling uh, public corruption thing, uh, trying to write it from beginning to end in a way that is understandable to people who aren't involved uh, was a challenge, but ultimately a satisfying one to sort of try to tell this sort of in a, you know, in a way that you know, is readable, understandable. And, and I've had a few people tell me it, it's a page turner, which I'm kind of shocked by. Um, but, uh, but you know, that to me, it was like sort of like trying to write these stories that the history books aren't really necessarily going to focus on because they're kind of unique to Tennessee. Well, scandals happen in every state, but our scandals are unique to us. Right, right. Um, and, and, and getting it all down and getting it sort of, you know, into the record where, you know, presumably later on, you know, somebody couldn't say, well, I had no way of knowing that, you know, the FBI did a bribery sting in the 2000s. And, well, yes, you could, because you could read this chapter in this book, um, it's kind of self-serving, but you know, it's, <laughs> that's a little bit of the point. Well, I mean, with the way our media ecosystem is, is fractured and the way people now decided that like the loudest uncle on, on the internet is where we're going to get our news. I think it's important. I, I think it's fine to be self-serving in this situation. I, I am in this stuff and I didn't know the stories I've lived here for almost 30 years and I didn't know some of these stories. So I think it is, is it, it is important. Who was your favorite character to write about? Um, my favorite character probably was Blanton. Um, personally, I think when I was watching in front of me, it definitely would have been Jeremy Durham, um, who, for those who may remember, um, was a state lawmaker here and, uh, 2016 period was facing a lot of uh, allegations of sexual misconduct. And um, he was just such a volatile character and was combative with all of us reporters and um, horrible presence at the Capitol. That's not to say, you know, I, I liked him for that reason. I think the dynamics at play, this is, you know, as Trump was just in office, you um, before Harvey Weinstein stuff. So it was really kind of this weird um, interplay of, of how reporters ourselves at the Tennessean 
could hold an elected official accountable. And it ultimately led to an attorney general's investigation that really found he uh, had sexually harassed at least 22 women. And it, it felt like it was uh, validating, <clears throat> excuse me, validating to actually go through, uh, you know, the, the, the bullshit that we face, you know, uh, from the Republican Party initially saying you guys are a bunch of libs writing, you know, stories attacking our people to now, um, actually seeing uh, he was an unindicted co-conspirator or conspirator in another case, um, you know, it, it felt like um, this is an unusual character. We seized on that. We found out uh, that he was bad, and he actually was held to account. He was expelled um, by the legislature in 2017. So, Joel's being a little bit modest here because he and our, coll- our friend uh, Dave Boucher, who helped us write the chapter, also formerly of the Tennessean, the two of them really blew the lid off of a lot of the stuff that happened on Durham. And there'd been a lot of rumors sort of received wisdom around the Capitol about his behavior. Everyone knew he sort of heard about it, but they were the ones that nailed it down and really got the ball rolling on, on him that and basically led ultimately to his ouster from the, from the house. It was, it was a pretty incredible piece of journalism, uh, you know, dedicated journalism that had to happen there for that to occur. So he seemed hyped up on something turned out that was Adderall. <laughs> according to him yes something for sure because he was caught in a in, you know allegedly falsifying prescriptions to you, try to get mad you got to share uh your character though has to be john ford right? uh, absolutely yeah. so uh I, I i did write the chapter on john ford and the tennessee waltz and i got to tennessee in late 2005 so i covered uh, personally the, the aftermath of the tennessee waltz bribery sting that led to the convictions of five lawmakers uh, but uh I'd heard the stories about John Ford in the Senate, you know, sort of legendary tales of, uh, you know, gregariousness and outrageousness. Uh, but going back and actually piecing it all back together again uh, was just incredible. I mean, here's a guy who was repeatedly stopped on I-40. He's from Memphis, driving from Memphis to Nashville, going, you know, 100 miles an hour to get stopped by the troopers and then berate them saying, I have to be the legislature. I have immunity. You can't stop me. And no matter how often the AG's office weighed in and said, no, lawmakers don't have immunity from traffic laws, uh, you do it anyway. And then when TV reporters would confront him about it, you know, he kicked one of them in the groin in the legislature and <laughs> nothing happened. Um, and, uh, you, know, the, you know, the guy was just absolutely brazen and, uh, and you know, just a fascinating guy because he is, uh, you know, a black lawmaker from, from Memphis. Uh, and early on when there wasn't a lot of African-Americans in, in, in state government and, you know, was beloved for certain things he certainly got things done and was extremely smart but also had no interest in any ethical constraints and flouted them at every turn uh jamie pointed out uh on 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 the twitters or whatever it's called these days yes (laughs) that uh that he had learned that 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 he had bought you know 12 montblanc pens with with constituent with with taxpayer money and and sort of (laughs) didn't see anything wrong with it uh and that's just that's just a, a minor it's a kind of a tiny thing um, and there used to be in the old press room in the old legislative plaza, there was, you know, we had a bunch of newspaper clippings that people would put up on the walls. And one of them was a quote from John Ford saying something to the extent of, I'm the most ethical man up here, <laughs> uh, which was hilarious because it was completely the opposite of the truth. Um, so just going through that, uh, was really fun. Of course, the stories are outrageous and, and it was fun to put them together in, in one place and sort of remind people that it shouldn't have been a surprise at all that he ended up being the sort of leading figure in this, in this bribery thing where the, the FBI set up a fake company to lobby uh, the legislature and, 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 you know, basically promised payoffs to write the legislation a certain way. I'm going to go back to uh, Blanton, Blanton and uh, Jeremy Durham, both from Adamsville, something in the water down yeah. there. Yeah, there might, there might be. <laughs> but John Ford is one of my favorite characters too, but the greatest story I heard about him back when at Legislative Plaza, just down from the Senate Speaker's office, kind of the small elevator around the corner. Uh, there in the back, there was, I think Jerry Cooper had his office there once upon a time, but he got on an elevator with a few people and had on uh, watch <laughs> cufflink. And somebody in the elevator said, Are those synchronized, Senator? And he said, No. They're Cartier. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't a tale of corruption necessarily, but it's still funny. <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, but it's illustrative of the character that, that he was. That, that is for sure. Uh, I mentioned, we, I kind of started the conversation with sort of the mental whiplash in the, his history. Did you guys learn anything about state of politics or media and how it works? Because we, we all kind of know 
the general narratives that are out there, but just going back and sort of experiencing five decades worth of stories, five decades worth of coverage. Did you learn anything about the direction of our media, the direction of our politics and, and how they interact at all? It's a good question. I mean, I, I think one of the things that we sort of noticed a lot of times is whenever people got in trouble in this, in this, you know, in, in our sort of period of history looked at leadership tended to rally around them. Right. And, and a lot of times these were, when the Democrats were in charge, it was Speaker Wilder would sort of say, oh, no, no, it's not so bad. Everyone relax. You know, just again, back, going back to John Ford, he was arrested and tried for allegedly shooting a gun at a trucker on I-40 um, who didn't get out of the way quickly enough when he was on his way to Nashville, I think, or maybe he was back to Memphis. But there was talk of the getting him, kicking him off his committee, and Speaker Wilder said, "No, no, let's not be hasty." And they basically said, he, "You know," he's, he's, and they went and testified on his behalf and said he's a great guy and he'd never do these sort of things. Like, okay. And then when later on, when when Ford was arrested in the bribery sting, John Wilder got up. He was still the speaker. You know, he was a record speaker. Uh, got up and said, "Oh, this is terrible that he was that the feds would entrap him like this." And and basically, the, the initial reaction is always to to circle the wagons. Um, and you know, the Democrats did this for Democrats and the Republicans do it for Republicans now until the key moment comes when they don't. I mean, it, I guess the tipping point happens. It's interesting to see when that happens at different, in different cases. And we have a chapter on, on Glenn Cassida and for him, there was the tipping point came very quickly because he had, you know, basically run roughshod over his own caucus to f force through the voucher bill and to for, you know, to do, to get, you know, basically his will done in, in the house. And he tried to get people to rally around him and they didn't, and he was out the first speaker in 125 years or so not to serve out his full term at the, at the, in the house. Hell, uh, Ford sponsored bills about child support laws that would reduce his obligation in active cases that he had in that, court to reduce his child yeah. support obligation. And <laughs> things really only start falling apart for Ford when Republicans, uh, basically they'd gained a numerical majority in the Senate, but they hadn't managed to kick out Wilder yet as speaker. So, you know, the partisan makeup makes a big difference. I mean, it's not a huge surprise, uh, but it is definitely something we saw for both parties, um, you know, that, that basically, you know, it'd be for, it's easy for reporters to say, cause we tr uncover things and think they're outrageous and think somebody should do something about it. And then they don't. And then they are the, the advice for me would be like, do something sooner yeah. because it doesn't get better. <laughs> and I, I do think, you know, our book kind of highlights the fact that reporting does matter, right? Uh, you look at uh, many of these scandals and, whether it's the beginning of the downfall of somebody or a component, you know, as you mentioned with Roger Humphrey just being briefly mentioned in the back page of the journal, um, that really does lead to a certain amount of scrutiny that if there weren't as many reporters up there paying attention um, and really taking the time to go beyond the headline, go beyond the thing that is happening right in front of you and invest deeply into um, you know, either an investigation or really just, you know, sussing out a rumor that's around the Capitol. I think um, the book does kind of tell that story that uh, the importance of local reporting, local journalism, not necessarily, um, uh, you know, um, seeing like this week, it was really refreshing, I think, for us to kind of see a full uh, um, press corps room in the Capitol. That doesn't happen, you know, often. Um, my time here, I've only seen it get a little bit smaller and smaller each year. Yeah. Um, but it was cool to see, you know, an overflowing room. And I'd like to think that there are, um, there is a value in continually putting more attention and, and bodies into, uh, press corps that focus on state legislatures. It, we joke about all politics being national uh, as sort of like a, a punchline, but it does seem to have triggered an interest that maybe didn't exist. And I don't know where you guys might think this is, and this is a totally different philosophical question, but interest, it, it must have waned somewhere. And I don't know if it's 08, 09, 10, 11, when we had a very kind of relatively calm country. I don't know if it's the Tea Party that comes back and creates this interest. And then, of course, that leads to Trump. I, do you guys get a sense that the all politics is national and the sort of, I don't want to say combative way, which is that is that affecting people on the local level? Are people more interested or is it just something tragic happens in your community and all of a sudden people are far more interested in what's taking place? I think you've started to see some investment in more local reporting, right? You've seen, um, uh, you know, the addition of States Newsroom around the country, which is an online based um, group that didn't exist 10 years ago, right? 
Um, you've seen a lot of these nonprofit based, you know, media organizations really start to look inward a little bit more and focus on state legislatures, city government, et cetera. I think they're filling a gap that once was traditional media um, because a lot of traditional media has gotten rid of their local reporters or some of their state focused folks. Uh, and I think that's refreshing, right? I, I, I think it's to me, I always tell people where I'm at now, right? Like the federal government matters, but in an everyday pocketbook sense, it doesn't, right? Yeah. The governor, the legislature and the city council will make decisions every day that hurt and impact you in a good or a bad way, a lot more than what Congress is doing or not doing. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the, the more reporters is always better. Um, and, you know, it's not exactly a, you know, but it is true that the press room this week, I mean, we had, you know, we were like stepping over people to get to, to, to my desk that Joel was sharing with me this week, Mike, you've been there, uh, which we, I've, I don't think I've ever seen since we've been in that building since 2018, right? There is like yeah. five WPLN people, the radio folks were in there, you know, their little cube, which usually seats one. Um, and the Tennessean had all you know, several photographers and like, it was, it was just, it was just really a great, uh, energy, uh, and vibe. And it was like, you know, if only we had this more often, you know, the other, but part more, of that more podcast is what you're saying. We need. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, part of the problem there is that, you know, uh, when you have 25 people and they're all chasing the same story, then maybe you're not getting this, you know, a diversity and nobody's di branching off to do, you know, something separate on some outrageous element of, you know, you name it, you know, Did everybody cover the ostrich egg on the Senate dais. No, I mean, that was actually, that was a uh, Chris O'Brien at channel two spotted that, uh, and, and really kind of led the way on that. And, uh, it, and you know, it, that was silly, but it was also kind of indicative of what's going on up there. And, you know, I, I don't know is, you know, we, we try to get the ostrich egg and bring it back to the press room as, as a sort of memorial to uh, the weirdness of the legislature. But uh, apparently uh, Representative Faison wanted it back. So Chris gave it back to him and we're still in negotiations <laughs> over that. J Jamie uh, hates the, the noise on, on, on X, on Twitter. And oh, the, you, the, you're, and the, you've adopted. And, Thank no, you. I, no, I'm making fun of you. And, 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 <laughs> and the gimmicks and all the stuff. But after reading the book, like... Gimmicks are a part of politics, just as much as the backroom conversations, the the eggs and the signs and the bullhorns, and the Crisco on the railroad. Like it's just, <laughs> it's all. It's been a part of it since the beginning. It's been a part of it for even before the book uh, time frame that you guys started covering. For sure, and of course, you know, we had to make an executive decision on how much we're going to try to cover ourselves. And the very first idea was like we should do a book on all the scandals, and we quickly realized that <laughs> that would be a multi-volume edition. And uh, and we started to cut it off somewhere. And so there's the the neat uh, 50 years for now. But as as Joel said, we were riding up into the very end of like you know the we had the Tennessee three in there, um, and you know since then there's been you know a, a senator former senator Brian Kelsey has now been convicted and and sentenced to prison, although he's now appealing. So the, the, the drum beat goes on, as we say. Yep. And, uh, and also we have a chapter in there, which, uh, which we, which I really like doing, and I'm glad we did it. It's called the uh, lawmakers behaving badly, which is a sort of <laughs> appendix of all the people we couldn't really give the ink to in the book. Cause otherwise it wouldn't, you know, even then with our restricted time frame, it would have been too long. Just basically hitting on all the various people who have run afoul of, you know, various social norms or legal ones um, over the years. And uh, and so it's a handy reference guide to all the other people who uh It's the quick hit when up. you're on the toilet, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it made me think of Tommy Burnett, you know, reminded me that he was reelected while serving time in prison. Federal prison, yeah. <laughs> and, also sounds familiar. And post-Tennessee <laughs> post Waltz, Governor Phil Bredesen calls a extraordinary special session on ethics reform. That's at, right. At a time that some might say distracted the people from the fact that thousands of Tennesseans were being cut off tin care at the same time. But hey, that's just well, there's that, and also they did the special session on ethics reform, and the and the you know Democrats in the House you know fought it pretty heavily, and, and in the end it was watered down significantly. Which gave Republicans ammunition to say the Democrats are, you know, they're the ones that were the main targets of the Tennessee Wallace probe, and they haven't really done anything to change it, and they're corrupt and terrible, and so vote for us. And, you know, the trend was going that way anyway, but it certainly helped, and, uh, you know, the Democrats kind of miscalculated on that one. Chris uh, Newton. He was the he was the sole Republican. I'm glad you remember the one Republican, but yes, the other the other four were Democrats. <laughs> it sounds like you guys won't have any material for a follow up. Everybody's <laughs> asking us this week. Yeah, so when are you going to update it? <laughs> I, I I 
if I've learned if I've learned nothing, it's that we've got a fire hose of content for you guys for the next fifty year volume. Hopefully, we don't have to wait that long for it. So, and it doesn't have to be us. We welcome everybody else to get on board and 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 keep doing it. Well, well I love the spots about Goose Hensley. I rode with Goose Hensley. He drove to Lisa Cooper's funeral, which you know shortly thereafter, Senator Jerry Cooper, who's who's in the appendix as well. <laughs> but it's like everything I heard about Goose Hensley was true. <laughs> He reveled in it. He certainly didn't try to hide who he was, and uh, he's a great, great character. And I, you know, I tried. Several people tried to interview him. This is this is Tom Hensley, the famous liquor lo- lobbyist, who, you know, the Tennessean on every reference referred to as the Golden Goose, uh, pejoratively. But he had immediately adopted it and had like a necklace that had a goose on it, and and his license plate said goose. And I mean, he's like, oh, this is great. You know, like anybody Google's it, pre Google. Anyone who looks up Tennessee will lobbyist will cut my name and they'll hire me. And they did. And you know, the guy was, you know. He was a, the lobbyist from Central Casting with a three-piece suit and a cigar. The, the and, photo in the book and, is great. You know, <laughs> just, you know, he, he ran the Miss America contest out in West Tennessee. Just, you know, he's just this, this really amazing guy. But the story in our book, of course, without getting too far into it, was that he, there used to be a liquor store in the Hermitage Hotel right across from Legislative Plaza. And he had a running deal there where any lawmaker that came and picked up booze, the the owner of the store would write it on the list and, and Hensley would then pay the bill later, you know, so... Free, free liquor for all lawmakers and and you know when this was finally reported or came out there was a big senate hearing and all the senators were shocked shocked that this was happening and and hensley's is of course you know knowing full well that all these people were on his list who had bottled his booze and and it was just a way of doing business at the time and people have gotten a little bit more creative now but only slightly well he said yes he didn't deny it no no he, no, said, he did yeah. no he said yeah of course i did it <laughs> And <laughs> this, this is how bills get passed. That's right. That's right. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much uh, for the work that you do, not only on the book, but uh, outside of the book as well. So, um, again, welcome to Capitol Hill, 50 Years of Scandal in Tennessee Politics. Go check it out. Order from a local bookshop. Order it from Amazon. Order it wherever you can and go read it and educate yourself on the history of politics in Tennessee. And we do appreciate you guys for coming in. Joel and Eric, thank you. We, we, we guys, re- we really appreciate it. Thank uh, you. For Jamie and I, thank you guys for listening. We will have a full recap, hopefully, of what took place in the special session on next week's episode. So thank you guys for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, and we'll talk to you next time.